Hello everyone and welcome to the 3D Experience Podcast. We will discuss everything from business to the latest technology as it relates to the process of design and manufacturing. Your hosts for this journey are John Milbury, Technical Director for Dassault Systems SolidWorks, and me, Mike Bookley, Senior Product Manager at Dassault Systems SolidWorks. Okay, so today uh, we have some guys that I've known for a few years. Uh, when I was a customer, we actually took a trip to Italy together. We have Jesse and Mark from Center for Advanced Design. Um, Jesse and Mark, tell us a little bit about what you guys do and who you are and why you're so cool. All right, Mike. Thanks for having us on the podcast here. Yeah, thank you. So, 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 people, that, yeah, so people that don't know who Center for Advanced Design is or where it is, uh, tell us where you're located and uh, how you two geniuses came to uh, be together to do one of the coolest things I've seen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's a great introduction. Um, so yeah, Mark, Mark and I um, actually work together at a local company here in Elk River, Minnesota. Um, we worked together for about 10 years and uh, we ran the engineering and industrial design department um, and just kind of always had the dream. Uh, we worked with local design firms and, and just always had the dream of, of starting a firm ourselves. And um, so yeah, about uh, about almost ten years ago now, we uh, we broke off and and uh, started CAD. Uh, CAD stands for the Center for Advanced Design, and um, we kind of carved out a niche for ourselves, designing for the plastics industry. So complex surface geometry creation for the plastics industry. So we get called into um, mid to large size companies that you know oftentimes have a, a staff of engineers. You know anywhere from one to 20 engineers but uh their their main focus or their day-to-day operation is uh, just solid modeling and, and assembly modeling and and they don't get into the the surface geometry as much so um we kind of got known for that and then um so we get called in on like special projects um uh, when they when they come across stuff that needs that type of uh surface modeling and it's it's not limited to that, um, but but the majority of it is uh, of our work is is that, and that's our true value add. But uh, we also do jump in, and um, we can we can act as engineering overflow and and help push projects along. Um, you know that combined with three D printing in house as well. So um, we let people leverage uh, our printers. We've got five printers running multiple multiple media's and uh, for different applications. And then um, that really spurred um, the second business that we own is called CAM. So it's a Center for Advanced Manufacturing. And uh, Mark can uh, jump in and, and, and tell you a little bit about that. Yeah. So on the CAD side, uh, you know, we've, like Jesse said, we've uh, been in business for about 10 years now. Uh, we've designed and developed, developed over 1,800 products. Um, so we're pretty proud of that. Um, what, what Jesse's talking about with our other company, CAM, our, our manufacturing wing, um, we had a lot of customers that were coming to us <clears throat> and asking us to, to design products and then also sourcing them. Uh, something we're very accustomed to. We source a lot of uh, products, both, both domestically and overseas, literally all over the world. And uh, so we, uh, we started doing more and more uh, sourcing and we had customers ask us, can we just buy them from you? Can we just buy from you? Can we just buy from you? Well, we have a, we have a, a pretty extensive background in tooling and tooling design and machining. And so because of that, we, we were found that we were able to design the molds after we were done designing the part, we designed the molds. And then once we show up to a company to have say, a thermoform tool made, uh, we have a cut ready file. We're not really waiting in line 
uh, like other customers would. So right now, with the economy as good as it is, uh, people are waiting, you know, 12, sometimes 16 weeks for molds, some, you know, roto molds or injection molds or, you know, thermoform molds. <clears throat> and we, we just really you know, found that when we show up with our cut ready files and our tools, you know, tool files ready to go, we can jump ahead of the curve and uh, usually have, you know, molds made in two to three weeks rather than two to three months. So that was kind of a value add then for our customers. We realized very quickly that we can turn that also into profit center. Okay, and you guys have a five-axis router too, right? Um, so not not a five-axis, but uh, a three-axis that we can um, we can uh, cut most thermoform tools with. Uh, when we do need five-axis capabilities, we have uh, partners uh, all over the Twin Cities that we work with. Okay. So yeah, really the uh, the, the manufacturing side kind of grew organically, although we had always known that. Uh, at some point we have a marketable skill, which is machining and tooling and stuff like that, that we could always you know, fall back on or use. Uh, we were kind of surprised how it, how it kind of found us rather than us finding it though. I mean, as customers kept asking for, um, you know, parts and molds to be made, then we kind of got more into that. Now, you know, at this point we make probably between 40 and 60 molds each year and our manufacturing wing has actually grown as well. We have a, a warehouse now, uh, we have parts that are produced, uh, domestically and overseas and we bring stuff in and then we just do kind of order fulfillment. So in a lot of cases we will bring in, you know, uh, 10 or 20,000 parts, you know, say injection molded parts. And then, uh, you know, our customers will take releases of, you know, two to 5,000 a month, things like that. So it's just more of an order fulfillment. Um, but it's a great way to kind of couple our two businesses, CAD and CAM together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I can expand on that too, how Mark, Mark had mentioned it grown organically. Um, we noticed too from the past working with a lot of design firms, they were forming partnerships with manufacturers, and uh, it would it would really drive um, the customer to that to that manufacturer where they were making the most return on that partnership. Um, in some some cases, you could be pushed in a direction that wasn't favorable or the best option for for design. So, um, so when we started the design firm, we we had some experience working with some other local design firms. And it seemed like every uh, different firm had multiple partnerships with manufacturing solutions, and they were getting kickbacks. And those kickbacks were negotiated, um, you know, behind the scenes, and certain ones were better than others. So a lot of times uh, a customer could get pushed in a direction, a manufacturing direction that wasn't the best fit for their product. So we recognized that as a problem from the start, and uh, we made a commitment to not um, set up these partnerships as a design firm. Um, but over time, uh, we we kind of uh, we kind of aligned with certain manufacturers that we knew um, had the capability to get the job done. Um, working with them was seamless, and we would push our customers that way. Uh, and it it would work because we would as we built that relationship, we we knew what equipment they had, we knew their processes, so we could help kind of set up the files to, to to enter into their system a little more seamlessly. And in return we would get business from them. So they would say, hey, this person contacted us. They need a CAD file. They had a great idea. They got a great uh, uh, concept, but they don't have a CAD file yet. So they would send them to us. We would do the work and then and then pitch it back to them. So um, yeah, it was just, it was just kind of this or organic growth and this this partnership with uh, the manufacturers. And and uh, so we, we always had great solutions to send our customers away uh, once, our, once our job was done. And uh, it just it just kind of came out of out of nowhere. So we 
you know, decided, well, well, we could be providing this manufacturing solution as well. Um, we could, on certain large scale projects where there was electrical engineering required, injection molding and assembly, well, we could we could gather all of that and kind of subcontract or that with some of these key suppliers that, uh, that we've been working with. So um, we still run the design side CAD um, as, as, as a design firm. And um, we don't, we don't push people to, to use us for manufacturing. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We, we say, here's, here's three local options. Here's an overseas option. And um, we'd like to throw our hat in the ring as well. And we could be a one-stop shop turnkey operation. So um, they own the design, um, up front so they they're free to go wherever they want but uh we give them that option and i, I think that's kind of key to to how we've been growing this side because we're we're not pushing people um we're we're making it free for them to make their decision and uh and and just kind of empowering them to in the best route to get their their product to market i i could see starting out being surfacing experts that understanding how to create, not just create that surface, but be able to create it a mold and also manufacturable is probably something that's fairly unique. Cause uh, I remember my days doing tech support, helping customers do surfacing stuff. And the designer would slap together some surfaces and they're like, ah, it's good enough. And being a manufacturing guy, I could be like, well, <laughs> yeah, it looks good enough, but that's gonna be a problem. So I, I could see on your side that having all of that well-rounded knowledge and understanding probably makes your designs actually uh, flow smoother. I, it, do you see that from customers that come to you and ask you to build that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's having that, that manufacturing knowledge is key because um, we know that there's a good chance that we're going to get this um, as a manufacturing job on the back end. So we want to set this thing up so it's ready to go. We have parting lines figured out. Um, draft is a big one. Um, yeah, we've, I mean, we've even been called in on multiple jobs where a company's using uh, another design firm and they say, yeah, the product's great, but it's, uh, we sent it to our manufacturer and they said it's not manufacturable. And then the design firm, uh, said this is where, this is where their skill set ends. So we, we pick it up and we, we run with it that way. But, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think one of the keys to how we've been able to grow so, so much is because it's, um, when we're doing industrial design work on the front end, we're, we're never painting ourselves into a corner. We're always thinking, all right, this looks cool. This is how it needs to be, but will this come out of the tool? And we won't, we won't go down that avenue unless we, um, unless we know that this thing's going to be able to be tooled. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's key. And, and like you mentioned um, from your tech support days, that surfacing piece is kind of a whole nother animal. You can, you can really get into some trouble if you don't know what you're doing, um, you know, if you get into some situations where you've got curved surfaces and, and they're sweeping into undercuts and um, you can get uh, you can get really carried away really quick um, and paint yourself a new corner, which is um, something we've been, been pretty good about not doing for the last 10 years. Yeah. So in 10 years, how have you how have you seen the industry change as far as how people are developing products, what their expectation is? Because. It, a lot of people we talk to, you know, we always end up back to the Amazon phenomenon of like everybody has the expectation of like, well, I should just be able to click a button on my computer and it either should design it or manufacture it. Or if someone else is doing it, I should have it next week. Um, how, how have you guys seen that transition happen in 10 years? Uh, yeah, we, we've definitely seen that transition. Uh, we've actually been asked that question is, <clears throat> isn't there a button that can just 
you know, finish that for you? And uh, the answer is always no, of course. But one thing we've noticed is that, uh, you know, we, we have not only gotten better at it, but also have, have trained our employees to get better at using the direct editing tools uh, that are within SpellWorks. And so a lot of times when we have, you know, surfaces and there's uh, there's either a, tra a translation error coming from another system or uh, there's, you know, some twisted surfaces or there's, you know, just uh, parts that we can quickly look at and, and SaltWorks is pretty good at let you knowing it as well, but uh, it sees some surfaces that they, they, need a, they need some work. You got to patch them up before you can really use them. And you're definitely going to want to patch them up before you get into something like a like an injection mold where you have an A side and B side. Um, so we've got actually gotten really good at that. And we also have gotten really good about setting expectations that things, uh, there's not a button for that. It's <laughs> not an easy button. And, you know, we, we quote accordingly. We tell people ahead of time, you know, this may take us between 12 and 16 hours. And we're usually pretty good about knowing that. Now, sometimes as everybody that uses SolidWorks or any you know, CAD modeling software knows, uh, you know, sometimes things go just swimmingly well and it takes you just a few hours and you're just surprised by how, how good you are at stuff. And the only times you fight it all night long and it can be something where you're up till two o'clock in the morning fighting, you know, three surfaces. That's just how it goes. And so that's where those direct editing tools, you know, pulling a, a bad surface out, repatching it in. Um, it's, it's really just experience. And it's, when we say experience, we're, we're saying, you know, it's just the number of hours you have behind the screen. Um, people that uh, we've seen a lot lately is uh, there's like machine shops and, and even mold makers. And they always have one, they seem to always have one kind of guru that's, you know, kind of behind the scenes. And that person may be very busy, but, you know, a lot of people can send uh, files to that person and they know exactly what to do to patch up the, the files and, and make them manufacturable. And uh, we just offer that as a, as a service and we're very upfront about that. Yeah, I think it's it's funny how, it, in my opinion, uh, in, in the early days, you know, people coming from board drafting to AutoCAD to AutoCAD Boolean solids to parametric modelers, those guys that transitioned through that era saw it as a tool, right? Just like a pencil and a protractor, a, a, Parametric CAD system is just a tool, and it, and it seems like the transition has been made to, well, it's an application. It should just do everything, and, and a lot gets lost in trying to use the product as a tool, not, well, I went and I went to a class. They taught me how to do it this way, so this is the only way it works, and it seems like that the, the people I've been around that really do well with a CAD application or a CAM application are the ones that really understand it's just a set of functions and whatever I have to do to get there, that's what I have to be the master of. I'm not, it's not a master of, oh, I can click a square and mouse gesture and do four things really, really fast. So I'm good because I'm fast. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have seen that with some of the people, but I've, I've noticed a lot of newer people into the industry. They, they don't see the application as a tool like a pencil. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I think that's one of the key things that makes SolidWorks so powerful is there's always three or four different ways to do the same thing. So you can achieve the same goal. And as long as you have that that background knowledge of how this, is, how this needs to be tooled, um, there's always three different ways to get there. So uh, I think that's one of the, the coolest parts. And the, and the more you work with the software, the more time you put in, you can look at a certain situation and the way some surfaces are coming together and you know what's going to work. So you, you use what's tried and true. You start with your number one option. And if that doesn't work, you back up and you try number two and, uh, and you'll get there. 
Yeah, just kind of to add on to that too, I think Jesse can attest to this as well, is that a lot of uh, new people, they, they learn parametric modeling and then they stick with it uh, to a fault. Uh, there's a certain point, especially with service modeling, that the parametric model kind of has to be abandoned, you know, to a certain point. Um, so, when, you know, once you get to a certain point, there is no going back. You know, you can't go back your model tree, can't go up three quarters away from your model tree and make one change on a complex surface model, it's not going to change correctly. You're going to blow up your model and you will air it out. So you, you kind of have to uh, learn when to save. You save often. I mean, we have, there's times where we'll be designing some surface, you know, you know some panels or something like that with a lot of surface, surface modeling on them. We might be at rev, you know, 57, 96. It doesn't, even, it, you know, it doesn't even matter to us. We, we just save often. And then, you know, if we need to go back and make a change, you can go back and try and make that parametric modeling change, but more than likely it's not going to work. And from time to time, you'll have to kind of save the file out as a different file type. Sometimes it's like, like an IGES file or step file, things like that. I mean, that's just one of the keys that we learned with surface modeling. I'll, you know, Jesse's got a lot more to say about that. Hey, yeah. And I, I think with, I think we say it all the time here when we'll work with one of our guys that's working on a really complex surface model and the model tree is just huge. And uh, we'll just be like, I think it's, we call it XT out. So we save an XT and then you bring it back in as a dumb solid. And then you start using, uh, you continue to use direct editing tools. So there's just, there's just like when you get into to the, the body panel style automotive, um, uh, recreational vehicle stuff, um, like UTVs and ATVs, um, when you're doing those, that type of surface modeling, um, you just get to a point and it's it's cleaner and it's faster and you move on. And there's some really large scale vehicle projects where I'll um, quote unquote XT out, you know, three and four times just to just to keep that tree clean and keep the model moving fast and 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 just just chugging along with direct editing tools. Yeah, I used to do that on a lot of sheet metal stuff um, <clears throat> back in the day. You know, we we get a sheet metal part from another system and like it had all those weird little sliver surfaces and like the customer would be like oh i can't get it to work can't do anything and it's like you know just take the surfaces offset them blow away the body now i have my surfaces to work with trim out what i want then come back patch it all together and voila it unfolds you know and it's like a five minute thing so uh i'm 100 percent on board with you guys on that with the um sometimes you just have to keep what's important and let everything else just slide away <laughs> um and it, to me, it works, but it's amazing how many people, like you said, Mark, get tied into the, no, this is my baby. I worked on it for 40 hours. There's no way I can't remove the history that's there and, and move forward. And it's like, it's just a tool, man. You know, if, I, if yeah. I'm working with clay and I need to throw a piece away, I just throw a piece away. The same thing happens in it, you know, when I'm designing something. You bet. Yes, that's exactly how we feel. That's exactly how we train our employees to, to think as well. Uh, that's that sheet metal is a, is a great example we've done that you know dozens of times as well you just you see something that's mostly there and you know you can get clean from what you need you take the surfaces you offset it you thicken it you make it the sheet metal part and then you'd be really surprised when you get good at it it's so fast it's so much faster than starting over and trying to do something the other way you know trying to do something where you're trying to stay parametric so hard that you you know it's uh well, it becomes a fault at a certain point. You you got to just at, at some point, kind of abandon what you see, save it, be sure to save it, but then abandon it and uh, try a different route. And that's that's how all of our you know best employees and some of the non employees, just the best that we've seen, 
uh, our competitors and everyone, everyone else, you know what they're doing and you can see exactly that they've had enough experience where they know when it, a good time to uh, XT out, as Jesse said. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's, you guys have your own product now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the product you have? I think it's pretty cool, but I want you guys to explain what it is, how you, how you came about. Like, um, it, it's pretty awesome. Yes, and uh, this is actually our, our third company now, which is uh, it's called Lid Boss. And Lid Boss, it's a touchless lid dispenser. Uh, it sounds pretty basic, but pretty, pretty much what it is, as I describe it, it's a, a device where you wave your hand in front of the machine and it dispenses a single sanitary lid. Um, these are the lids that would go on like your coffee cups, if you're at Starbucks or a place like that, or any uh, fountain drink that you'd get at, you know, quick service restaurants, fast food restaurants, that kind of stuff. And really the lids are everywhere. They're at every convenience store and, and just about every restaurant around. We, we noticed a huge uh, uh, problem with sanitation for one, but then as we started talking to some of the, um, you know, the owners, the franchise owners, things like that, they're losing about 20 to 25% of their stock to people throwing them away. So what happens a lot of times, if you go to like a Chipotle or something like that, people may grab, you know, three or four or five lids at a time on accident. You can never grab just one. And then they grab the one they want. And if somebody's standing nearby, they throw the other four in the garbage uh, or they set them just, they just set them on the counter. And then the attendant comes by later and throws them in the garbage. So they can tell pretty easily between the number of, you know, cups of soda that they sell versus the number of lids they go through there's a disconnection there. So obviously with, with like uh, people you know, being conscious of plastic or just plastic waste, uh, we, we saw that there was a, an opportunity there. Um, if we can get rid of the waste and we can provide a uh, kind of a single sanitary lid to people and really you know, improve the customer experience, we, we kind of thought we'd be on something. And it seems like we are. We just, uh, we just launched the product. We're doing about beta tests with some, some very large, well-known chains right now. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're hoping uh, 2020 is going to be a good year for us and, and with this product. I know, and you guys talked about it last year at uh, SolidWorks World. I went and checked it out, and I was like, it's just one of those aha things of like, why didn't somebody think of this before? Like, it makes so much sense. Um, I would assume that the, the companies you're testing with are probably in that same same vein of, obviously, they see the dollar signs of lids saved, but uh, but just from like a cleanliness and like, oh, yeah. I don't know how we would ever live without this. I mean, is that sort of what you guys are getting feedback yeah. from? It, it is. I mean, really, when we when we're talking to uh, the, the bean counters, the people that are watching the dollars and cents, and they see a, a twenty percent reduction in lid waste, we can show them pretty easily that the ROI, the return on investment on the machine, is is between two and six months, depending on the how many you know cups they sell a day. So a really short return on investment and an improved customer experience. You know, once, like you said, too, we, we kind of had that, that aha moment. Um, we, we kind of thought, we, were, we obviously thought, well, this product must already exist, which is kind of what we see with a lot of products, you know, a lot of good ideas, and then you search it, and it's out there. Well, this one, it really wasn't, not in any way, shape, or form. So uh, we've actually got a, a total of uh, 14 patents now on this product and future versions of this, of this uh, in, in future embodiments of this product as well. So we are pretty excited about this and, you know, being able to kind of um, have a little breathing room, have a little time to, uh, you know, launch this product and, and really get it dialed in. We're on our second generation machine right now, which is, is working very well. Um, but there's there's obviously a, a, a larger need for this. So there's other things that need to be dispensed uh, correctly and, and uh, with sanitation in mind. 
And uh, you know, big thing for us is to keep the ROI very, very short. And then um, really, you know, in our industry, like everyone else uh, should be as well, is, is being conscious of, of plastics and, and waste and how we can, you know, uh, mitigate that. Yeah, it, that's a super important thing. You know, my previous life of doing recycling systems, I can tell you that um, we could do with uh, less plastic waste. <laughs> um, there, yeah, that's true. There is a lot of money spent on trying to figure out how to sort different types of plastics. Um, and it's amazing how much more plastic gets bailed for recycling than any other thing that goes in the waste. Um, so I I think it's awesome. Just, just out of curiosity, um, do you got do you got to not to put you on the spot here, but do you got a gut feel for how much um, gets thrown away versus recycled because it's not sorted correctly? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, it's hard to give you a percentage. So, uh, here's what I can tell you from my previous life. <laughs> um, so like we did that big system in the Bronx and in that plant, um, you know, which was $10 million sorting system, everything got sorted pretty, pretty precise and pretty accurate because we were doing uh, couple different manual sorting lines plus we were using technology to <clears throat> not only sort the play paper but sort the plastic out and then we were pulling the uh, ferrous and non-ferrous out of that so in that system um, it was pretty good however a lot that's a big municipality right because it was in the Bronx so there they have that eight to ten million dollar twenty million dollars they can they can afford those types of machines when you're talking a more rural area where it's sorted by hand or maybe not even sorted at all, that's where we see a lot of stuff that's uh, missorted or just thrown away. Uh, the the big problem you have with some of the plastics is, and uh, I'm guilty of this. I have a pot bottle and I'm talking to you, right? Or I have a water bottle and I'm talking to you, and I, I peel off the label and I shove it in the plastic, or I find other things and I shove it in that in that bottle. Um, when you change the density, if you're using physical type sorting, that changes the ballistics of how that bottle sorts. So then some of that gets missorted. Um, so, Interesting. yeah, because there, there's different types of sorting you can do. You can do optical, you can um, through optical sorting, but you can also do the ballistics for like star screens and things like that. So 3D material goes up over the top, 2D material goes down the bottom. Well, if you take a, a plastic bottle and you smash it flat, it behaves a little bit different than if it's a bottle that hasn't been smashed uh, as far as mm -hmm. physics and the properties of whether it goes up and over or down. And it, there's a whole bunch of variables into it. But uh, to give you a ballpark number worldwide, I, I can't really tell you, but I can tell you that the bigger the bigger municipalities that can afford the more advanced systems from, uh, you know, like uh, uh, there's a big company in Canada, uh, SolidWorks customer, uh, Machine X. They put in big systems. There's a CP out of uh, California. They use SolidWorks. They put in those big systems. They actually have one called a McMurph, uh, which is sort of uh, a standard system that goes in anywhere. If a company, if municipalities can afford those types of systems, they're, you're probably well over 80% of capturing all the right material in the right spot, white paper, color paper, metal, you know, plastics. But you know, these, these local municipalities are like, oh, we'll just pre-sort it. We'll pick it up at the curb. Um, the truth with a lot of that is even though you may pre-sort it, if the municipality is not big enough, they take all that pre-sort and they dump it all in one big pile on the floor. And then it goes through a sorting system again. 
Um, so it, it really depends. God. Um, it, it was crazy to me to learn that some, some communities make you sort just to take it to a place and dump it on a floor and run it through a machine to sort it again, because humans don't sort well enough. Um, yeah, that's very true. We, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of confusion around, uh, what materials people are not necessarily educated on, uh, you know, what is polypropylene versus PETG and how, how they should be separated. And, you know, I think nobody really understands the downstream process either. I know I don't, I, I really don't. I, I try to recycle, you know, my, my PETG water bottle or, you know, milk jug or whatever. Um, but I, I really don't know what's happening once it gets to the recycling plant, how it sees it or how it's separating it. So, yeah, we definitely need uh, more education in this country. Yeah, we we do a really good job of making people feel guilty about recycling. Yeah. Um, but we don't <laughs> we we don't educate people on how the process actually works. And some of that's twofold. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Some of that is is well, if you don't know what the if you don't know how the sausage is made and you just do it, you're going to do it average. But if you know how the sausage mm -hmm. is made, then you may ask a lot more questions, and that might feed into the business aspect. So some of it is a little bit of intentional cloak and dagger on how recycling works. Um, because I charge you to come pick up my trash and then I take it to a place and it gets recycled and, and I'm charging you a hundred bucks a month to pick up your trash, but I'm making off of that trash thousands a month, right? Because of how I recycle it. Well, if I show you every little piece in the process, then you're going to want to know why I pay a hundred for you to make a thousand type thing. You know, it's like the cow, right? I go buy the cow from the farmer for a thousand bucks, but when it goes to the store, that cow actually makes me thousands of bucks because of the person in the, um, so there's a little bit of that, which is unfortunate. Um, but I can tell you that with, uh, like red waves, uh, out of Europe, their ability to sort, um, you know, the technology out there to sort recycling is pretty amazing. Uh, the problem is, is there, well, there's lots of problems. Uh, part of the problem is politics. Part of the problem is business because if everybody actually recycled the way that they should recycle, um, we would recapture so much stuff that it would then become really, truly a green process. Uh, like the, the plant we made in the Bronx, uh, it had all NEMA rated motors and it won several awards for its energy efficiency and output. Um, but getting it to that point costs triple what a normal recycling machine plant would cost. Uh, but if everyone was on board and that's the way it was supposed to work, then, you know, everybody would be successful about it. The other thing that happens is, or was happening, they actually put up a green fence for it. So a recycling plant would you know, they make four foot by four foot by eight foot bales. So if you're driving through Wisconsin or Nebraska or Minnesota and you go by a field and you see those big square bales out in the field, those are traditionally four by four by eight. Uh, same type of bale, only instead of a mobile baler, it's a great big, huge one that sits on the floor. Um, so most of the recycling goes to China and gets redone and then comes back, right? Whether it's uh, steel or plastic or paper. Uh, and then paper gets sorted by white or color, however. So what was happening is those bales get sold and then put on a barge and shipped to China. Well, there was a certain scenario before the green fence that went up where China would buy this shipping container full of bales 
of a given plastic or metal or, or paper, when it would arrive in China, the first couple rows were four by four by eight bales and the front 60% of that container was 100% pure trash. So things that couldn't be recycled were getting shoved into a container and shipped overseas, um, which obviously caused a problem. <laughs> so there's now this green fence that has been propped up to where um, everything has to be validated triple and triple checked and all that to make sure that we're not just shipping raw trash to other parts of the world. Um, so those are some of the things that go on with recycling. Um, however, the concept and when it works the way it's supposed to work is, is phenomenal and it does the right thing. Um, the problem is, is there's so much of that gray area in the middle um, that has caused a lot of bad things to happen, um, which then people just stop recycling, which is not the answer at all. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. You talked about earlier about the differences 10 years ago till now. I think 10 years ago, um, is this product recyclable? Uh, recyclable never came up in initial design reviews. Um, but now I'm surprised at how often, especially with larger customers, larger companies, um, it's something that's being being talked about in, in the early stages of the development of some of these products. And, and it's, um, it's influencing um, you know, what we're putting into the plastic. I mean, do we, we, do we really need to add this much glass fill or talc into this, in this mix or um, this UV stabilizing chemical, or uh, can we get away with just straight polypropylene and, and, and changing the design a little bit? Um, those are questions that were, were just not even on the table 10 years ago. And, and it's, it's a daily uh, occurrence here for us now. Yeah. It, it, and to me, like those are some of the most important questions that should be answered, right? Um, it, instead of just assuming that everything should be plastic, maybe we use a different method, you know, or, or how does that affect everything? Like to me, that's some of the best things that have come out of how technology has changed. You know, I mean, even SolidWorks has, um, apps to try to help you calculate that impact. But to me, that's the part that's exciting is people are actually exploring things. Cause I feel like in the early days, it was just metal glass. That's it. And then it was like, oh, we have this thing called plastic. Everything's plastic. And now we're trying to find the balance for it. And I, to me, I think that's super cool. Yeah, one of the cool things we've seen, uh, kind of going back to that lid boss, uh, lid dispenser, is we're seeing obviously a big push away from straws, which is changing the way that the lids are designed and manufactured, which is kind of cool. I mean, there's, there's actually uh, maybe some drawbacks to it that in many cases, it's actually using a little more plastic to get rid of the straw. So if you took the, uh, the weight of the, the straw and the, uh, the former lid, uh, the new lids are actually <laughs> heavier than the two put together. However, uh, we're getting rid of the straw, which in itself, the design of the straw has been problematic as we all know, uh, with you know, some sea creatures and things like that. So that was the problem. It wasn't necessarily that people were not you know, throwing them away properly or recycling. It was that simple design that's been around forever. So. A lot of people are moving to, a lot of companies are moving to, towards a, a touch, a strawless lid, which is totally fine. It's uh, some really cool new designs coming out. Uh, but one of the cool things we've seen uh, very recently is all the, um, well, one company is called EcoLid, but it's a crystallized PLA and uh, it's compostable. And it's, you know, it's a, uh, I'm not sure how long it spends in a, a commercial recycling plant or, you know, a, a a commercial compost plant, but it is uh, you know probably a matter of a few months before that is is gone and, and biodegradable. Um, 
also there's uh the you know the crystallized pla we're seeing a lot more of that just across the board and everything else people are trying things you know people that see like uh for instance like the k cups that people use in their curing machines for coffee every morning people are trying now to figure out how to uh, get rid of using the traditional kind of polypropylene or whatever it might be i think it's polystyrene actually but you know looking at how, how do we use that crystallized pla how do we recycle these things and or make them compostable yeah, I, I actually, I stopped using the Keurig when I started doing recycling stuff uh, at home because it was like, I I can do the old style coffee, um, you know, seeing how those go through. But, you know, it's funny you talk about the the lids and the straws for recycling, um, and then I'll get out my recycling kick. kick but uh, the, the number one killer of recycling uh, plants and efficiency are the, the stupid film trash bags that, you know, you go to the grocery store, you get that light film trash bag, um, that kill, that provide or creates more downtime in a recycling plant than oh, okay, anything yep. else because that stuff stretches yep. and it wraps around all the shafts and it, when it wraps around the shaft, it becomes like VCR tape and it will eat, it'll actually cut the bearing or the shaft down. So like those, uh, 3d screens that I was talking about, you know, that separate 2d from 3d based on their ballistic characteristics and uh, airflow so those they have rubber stars on them that have a different durometer depending upon what type of material you want but in between those there's shafts well that film because it, it catches the star it wraps around the shaft so like the one we had in the bronx at the end of every shift there was an hour hour and a half to crawl in that screen and cut the film bags out and they would wrap so tight that they were actually using uh, air chisels like you use on your car to cut a bolt um, they would you get in there and do that to clean it out because those would wrap up so big, it would actually stop the other material from being able to be sorted. Um, so it's funny when people talk about the lids and the straws because they are a problem, but the film bag causes more problems with efficient recycling than anything else. Yeah, and, and we're obviously in Minneapolis, St. Paul here, and it uh, they're kind of going city by city in their they're charging people or they're forcing um, uh, supermarkets to charge for the bags. Uh, is that the same where you are, Mike? Uh, yeah, so they do some in Colorado, and I think there's certain areas this year starting in 2020 where they're actually banning that, making people use the paper bags, um, which, yeah, which is awesome. Um, because the other thing, you guys say you work with overseas stuff, right? Have you noticed how the cardboard that comes from overseas is a different structure than out here? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Do you know why it's different? I don't No. So do you? yeah, I do. Um, it, crazy things I learned at Carl Schmidt. Uh, so the cardboard that we have here in the U S uh, is consider that like the fresh new plastic, you know, when you're doing an injection mold, like it's the number one stuff, right? It, it's the brand new fibers molded together. Uh, nothing's been recycled. It's pure. And then just like plastic molding, you know, you regrind it, you get it. And then, uh, it starts changing a little bit, right? So when yep. we when we take cardboard, uh, we separate cardboard and recycling separate. That goes to, to China, and then it, it the fibers get broke down. Well, when it gets broke down, obviously you lose some of the integrity, right? So what they do is they use straw, and they infuse straw with those fibers, and that's what makes that type of cardboard so you can continue to reuse it. So that's why when you get your stuff from Amazon or, you know, Christmas, you know, you, you tear into a box that was brand new here in the U.S., and it's got that rigidity and it's real strong, and then you go grab something that came from overseas, and it's that thinner stuff. 
the reason the color is different and the, and the fiber structure is different is because of the straw that was infused during the recycling process. So you can actually take cardboard and break it down and use it over and over and over, but then they mix straw back in with it uh, to keep the rigidity of what we would consider cardboard. That's crazy. And that that's kind of something we learned too, working on this lid boss um, piece when we were designing the packaging. Um, we've got a bunch of sensors in there and some circuit boards. There's 47 separate injection molded parts that um, have to come together and everything has to align and work. And the tolerances we're working with are, are pretty tight, um, trying to grab, uh, separate these lids from a stack. And um, so when we were building the packaging, the logical solution was let's do some styrofoam pieces and um, let's really capture all these and lock everything in. Well, a lot of the large franchise restaurants will not accept styrofoam packaging anymore. So everything had to be cardboard. Um, so it, it forced us to get really creative um, with some interlocking pieces and and doing what we needed to do to capture this. Um, but uh, we were able to get everything everything built out of cardboard. And then um, we used G-Shock sensors and, and sent uh, units across the country and back and, and multiple multiple shipping methods and um i think we we landed on a on a really good solution for that as well so um just kind of cool something that we we went through and and we we carry forward to future products for our for our other customers that's super cool i didn't know companies were rejecting that the uh styrofoam stuff or styrene yeah it's a bit a bit newer but a lot there's a lot of corporate charters now that are changing and so <laughs> and we are learning and we are figuring out ways to uh to, to read up on that obviously just like we talked about you know straws and you know they're uh how they package stuff even behind the counter at uh, you know these, these large fast food restaurants um how they're bringing in their bags and materials and how they're you know uh, obviously there a lot of them are using plastic bags just like you described the film plastic bags as well and it it's you know it's a good look for their product and i think that's what you know it's a big marketing push it had had been a big marketing push but as people are are learning about the stuff and pushing back, they're learning that they can, you know, package their foods in, in different ways as well. So everything now is kind of a closed loop system, everything from, you know, how they receive the products like ours or any kind of, uh, you know, kitchenware item, um, you know, all the way out to the handing the customer their, you know, burgers and fries, whatever it might be on at the drive through. Uh, it's, it's, it's being very watched very, very closely right now. Yeah. To me, I think it, I think it's cool, and I think it's exciting, and I think it allows opportunities for you know new designs, new processes, um, mm -hmm. new ways to look at the world. And it, to me, that's that's going to be the ultimate key, right? Because if we're all designing the same box, it's sort of boring. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and I think it's for sure um, one of the cool parts about our job is because we're not we're not just sitting in front of a computer for ten hours a day moving a mouse around anymore. It's uh, we're 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 having to find you know, creative solutions to these problems that arise like that. And um, it, it's, uh, I think it's, it's kind of the way we have our office set up. Um, it's, uh, it's an all open atmosphere. We don't have cubicles, nobody has separate offices. It's, uh, it's designed that way specifically. So when we have these questions, I'll, I'll be like, uh, I'll run into a run into an issue. And I'll, and I'll remember that Mark was fighting with something or, or, or Chris or Tom was fighting with something two weeks ago with another customer that was similar. I can literally just turn around and say, "Hey, Tom, what what did you do for that thing?" And then he'll he'll walk over and help. And um, I think it's super important to, to to. I don't think we'll ever change our office that way because it invites that that um, that team effort. And I think that's one of the one of our strong suits 
it's just human nature. If everybody's in separate offices or separate cubes, if you have a problem, you you'll ah, I don't want to walk in there because then I gotta I gotta get his attention and bug him, and then he has to stop working on what he's doing and turn around. So um, yeah, I think that open atmosphere and then this this collective of of solving these these problems like the packaging pieces is kind of what makes it exciting to come into work every day. We're not uh, it's 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 more social than than sitting in an office all day for sure. Yeah, I'd agree. I I could see how that would be very beneficial. Now, so we're talking about innovation. Um, we have something that we're going to jointly be doing here in, in a few short weeks, um, which is 3D Experience World. So can you guys talk a little bit about what it is? I mean, obviously we're doing something in the shop floor, but what it is we're also going to be showcasing with Mike? Yeah, for sure. So Mike Mike Schultz um, is, a, is an athlete and a business owner, um, and we've been working with him for almost almost as long as we've been a company here. I think he was one of our very first customers but um so he's a he's a uh, a professional racer and uh it's the only job he's had his entire life and um snowcross motocross and uh he was involved in an accident uh a few years back and um ended up having to have his leg amputated and within a year uh he had uh, a prototype put together uh for a leg that would allow him to get back on the snowmobile back on the motocross bike the issue is um when you have an accident like that uh, the insurance company and the, the prosthetics companies give you, or you you end up with a, a leg that's made for walking. So it's uh, it's it's got battery and sensors and and everything on it. Um, and they say don't get it wet and don't don't break it. And uh, that wasn't going to work for Mike. Um, he needed to get back on the bike and and back racing. So he he put together um, a mechanical knee and a foot that uses uh, air shock like a mountain bike shock uh, fox shocks actually and then uh, a breakaway uh, he concepted a breakaway knee so it was a roller guide the shock hook to so it would give you like a real knee feel to it and then the key thing is it was um, uh, relatively inexpensive and it had replaceable parts so if you were in uh, a snowmobile accident or whatever you'd be able to you'd be able to swap out some parts and, and be ready for your next moto yeah, Mike. Mike really took that uh, the, the concept and uh, you know uh, kind of honed it and he made a, a a very viable product that started getting a lot of attention. Um, it was actually very interesting because you know working with him for as long as we have, uh, we kind of get to watch his his new career as an adaptive athlete. And uh, with that, he he has won, I believe, it's eight X Games gold medals. Um, but he also raced in the uh, Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018. And uh, he, he uh, took home a gold and a silver for the United States, which is, you know, obviously very exciting. But kind of the cooler part of that story was that there were there were 30 athletes from 10 different countries that used the BioDAP leg to compete in the Olympics. That's so, 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 yeah, but yeah, Mike was, uh, and most of them were, were snowboarding or, or downhill skiing uh, competitors. And uh, I, I believe the medal count total was like 31 between gold, silver, and bronze. So very very cool story uh if you, anyone's going to 3d experience world they're going to be able to see a lot more about mike's story uh, hopefully be able to meet mike he's an amazing per person amazing athlete but uh you know he's got uh he's got a heart for people and he is uh you know he's a he's uh working with other adaptive athletes um people are coming back uh, you know from from the war from the military that uh maybe missing limbs and stuff like that and he gets them um, you know, back in the sports that they love doing, which is, it's kind of, you know, besides being, um, you know, athletic and being out there and, and uh, you know, keeping 
motivated it's also it i think affects people's you know psyche a lot and um you know it lets them do things that they loved doing previously and uh it's very very important mike's got so many great stories and uh hopefully you guys can all meet him and talk to him and he's actually competing the night before coming to three day experience world too right yeah for sure he's actually going to be flying in from colorado uh, a border cross event i believe and uh, so he's he's going to make it just in time for rehearsal, and then uh, he'll be there with us the whole day uh, on opening day, and and then uh, he'll be hanging out in the booth with with us and uh, answering questions. And he's just like Mark said, he's just a he's just a great guy to talk to. He's super um, super friendly, and he's just one of those people that are so naturally talented. Like at everything he does, um, through the the years of working with him here, there was we had I've had multiple opportunities to either. Um, go race motocross with him or mountain bike with him so he he'd come down here for design review i stayed down here he's about an hour north of us um so he'd come down to our office we'd do a design review and and we'd make some changes on something that we're working on and then we'd go over to the single track mountain bike trail and he would just dominate it was just i couldn't come up with a guy and then um when it comes to motocross and snowcross he's just on a he's just on a whole nother level and uh just super talented. So it's one of those rare, really, really cool customers where um, we get to work with them and then we get to spend a little time with them outside of work and, and have some fun. So um, for sure rare, but uh, really, really, really fun. That's awesome. And his design, obviously, you know, if we're talking about it, I know uh, with the new name from SolidWorks World, the 3D Experience World, obviously we're, uh, we're gonna be talking about his designs that uh, started several years ago in SolidWorks. And then uh, we're also going to be talking about some of the transitions with uh, some of the new additions he wants to make and, and uh, using some of the uh, X-shaped stuff, correct? You guys have done some things with him on that? We had an opportunity to to leverage one of SolidWorks' uh, new tools, X-shape. Um, it, was, it was to develop a product for Mike to help help communicate that um, it, was, it was his leg that he was on um, during the competition. So a lot of people would want to talk to him after, after the event or he'd be going to do interviews and he would be wearing his leg that's specifically designed for walking. Um, so he'd swap out the action sports leg, put this one on and he'd go do the interview and it was hard to communicate what um, his product was. So we decided uh, we were going to work on a cover for him and it was going to go over the everyday walking leg and then it would have continuity to his product. So it, it has a lot of the features that his product has on it but it has a really complex surface modeled shape to it um, and uh, so it was a perfect fit to uh, start in X shape and I think uh, X shape was uh, just a natural progression for us I know we touched on it earlier with the surface modeling but um, we just we were in the mindset of not always leaning on the model tree it wasn't a necessity for us so it made um, how X shape works just natural for us. It was just a natural progression. And then it really allowed us to, to get in and get a lot of these um, organic shapes, a lot of these um, curved, multi-curved surfaces that we need for, for plastics design and uh, in a short fashion. So we can, I can rough out um, the, the basic shape of this part in a fraction of the time it would take me in SolidWorks to be setting up planes and sweeps and lofts and, and, and work that. So, um, you know, it, it's really, a powerful software and everybody's everybody's going to look at it and use it slightly differently but for me um 98 of the time my products will always end up in solidworks 
but it just depends on the complexity and the project at what point that switches over. So for like what I was doing with uh, Mike's cover, I, I got about, I would say 40% through the shape and, and the size that I wanted. And then I transition, transition that into SolidWorks. And there's, there's some projects that I'll, I'll run through X shape and it'll be 90% complete. And then I drop it into SolidWorks. So you just, um, with that surfacing background, you'll know, and, uh, you'll know when to switch over. And, and, uh, sometimes, sometimes you don't at all, you can get everything you need out of it, but, um, just a super powerful tool in the past. Um, we've used alias and we always had issues transitioning back into SolidWorks. Um, I know earlier in the podcast, we had mentioned that a lot of the things that we do, we take to tooling and then sourcing as well. So, um, it's fine if you're going to build something an alias and then transition off onto somebody else. It's their problem, but um, eventually you you need to put that back into SolidWorks and figure out how to make a tooling file out of this. And it just seems a lot of the times with some of the other uh, subdivisional modelers that we've tried, you're just fighting that uphill battle all the way through. And there's been times where we just we literally have to give up and remodel the part in SolidWorks if we've been given something out of alias or if somebody here has done something in alias to, to rough something in. Um, but that was something we were super excited about with X shape because we didn't see any of that. I mean, the, 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 uh, the surfaces come through and are recognizable. They're perfect. Um, perfectly translated into SOLIDWORKS and seamless. So, um, we know if we've got something coming out of X shape, we're not going to be fighting that uphill battle all the way through tooling. Yeah. And I, I think it comes back to what we've started with, right? It's, it's about looking at the technology as a tool and, and how to get your job done. It's, it's not the, Oh, well, I have to do it in this because everybody sees me as the expert in this. It's a matter of I have a job to do and it's I have to do the right design for the right person and get everything correct for the downstream application. And it it's funny how many people get hung up on the logo that's on the top of the screen um, and don't just see it as another tool to accomplish my job. Um, yeah. And, you know, and it's 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 all about time and, and getting out of your comfort zone a little bit and i think that's one of the cool things with x shape and x design is it's 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 different and it's powerful but it's familiar enough to where you're not gonna feel lost when you get into it you know and um it, it's you're in familiar territory it yeah it does you do have a little bit of a learning curve but it's it's short and it's um and it's easy to get up up and running and then you see you start to see value pretty early on um uh, more than more so than a lot of the other systems that I've learned over the years. Um, but, uh, we're just, we're just excited to have that, that, that subdivisional modeling power, um, in, in a package that, that is seamless with SOLIDWORKS and, and blends directly into our system and our directory. I, I found that too, as I'm programming Mike Schultz, uh, five axis parts in Delmia this year, um, I'm going through a learning curve of going from SOLIDWORKS doing some stuff in X design when I need to do it because it already exists on the platform and then bouncing over to Delmia. And, and I, and I found like the more that I work with, with the different tools, the more I'm it, the more I'm excited by how I can use the same thing, the same ideology between all three to accomplish what I need. It's not a matter of, Oh, I have to use a and B. Well, maybe I just need to do something real quick. I can pop over to you know X Design and do it there, and just pop right back, and it, it's super fast. It allows me to be more fluid. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but that's what I've noticed in the last yeah. few weeks. Absolutely, yeah. When when it comes to uh, <clears throat> software, I mean, it's it's good to have the uh, you know the best and most powerful software on your computer. That's one thing we're we're very fortunate to have is you know when we do need to 
uh, bring something in or do a translation, we are, oh, knock on wood, we're pretty much never stuck. We're never at a loss. Uh, we can pretty much bring any type of file in and, and work with it. We, we don't get stumped very often, uh, but that has a lot to do with the, you know how powerful these new software systems are. Obviously, SolidWorks always has been there. That's been our mainstay, XShape, XDesign. Uh, the new, you know, uh, CAM software that we can use now—it's—it's uh, it's becoming very well integrated, and that's really, I think, what the, the 3D experience is all about—is having that—that that, you know, what they call it, the platform, and then from the platform, everything else are, you know, are like you mentioned, they're, they're tools that belong in the platform rather than their own separate software, and we're learning that too. I mean, it actually, you know, we're not real old, but we're old enough that we've been around <laughs> since uh, you know the earlier versions of SolidWorks, and. It, it was a little bit of a uh, you know learning curve just when we're uh, learning curve is the wrong word it's it's getting over the hump it's getting past your your hangups of you know what what it means to be cloud-based in some instances and where your files are being saved when it doesn't feel quite as natural as just staying it to a uh, you know, spinning hard drive um, so some of that stuff we've had to kind of overcome on our own um, but of course we do and you know, you see the you see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's it, it's it's all good stuff. Um, the platforms, the, uh, the the file saving, the the cloud based kind of sh you know the sharing uh, server space, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it was it was a little bit more of a, a of a hump for us than we thought it would be, but it's it's becoming a very good thing. Yeah, and and to add to that too, as a design firm, um, we need as Mark had mentioned not being stumped with receiving files from our customers. I think the, the cool part is I, the vast majority of our customers are already on SolidWorks, so it just uh, it just makes it seamless. And even um, recently, when we do have a few customers that are on Creo or some other platforms, it's um, it, it's so it seems like Solid, people at SolidWorks are are putting the time and effort in to make that as seamless as possible and. Um, we're able to to work with those customers just as easily uh, as we as we would if they had SolidWorks. Yeah, it, we're we're all about the same age of being old, um, and we all learned in school, you know, on the Windows 3.1 and the DOS stuff of like, oh, you put it in this folder and you do this here, and then oh, you go get a USB driver, zip driver, you know, a, a three and a half inch floppy if we go back far enough, and to transition to the platform, it's it's a completely transitioning to the cloud is a completely different way of thinking and working of like, oh yeah, I'm just working right here and I can go home and I can log in into it and they're all right there and I don't have to take anything with me. And um, it, it's a different ideology, but uh, it, it is funny how as you work with that stuff and then you go somewhere and realize you didn't have something on your on the cloud or on a platform and it's like, oh, I forgot to grab that. It's on my computer at work. Well, I guess I can't do anything today. You know, it's funny how the you, you start taking it for granted, or at least I have over the last couple of years. I think one of the things that that uh, sets SolidWorks apart is is the attention that they pay to the the new technology. So we're firm believers in the, the Wacom Cintiqs, and uh, the majority of our designers have them, and they we use them on a daily basis. and And I really like to see every year. It seems like with every release, they're enhancing the 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 pen tools within SOLIDWORKS and it's something that we're, we're aware of and we definitely leverage. Um, it seems like in the past you would have, you'd be working on the industrial design phase of a project. So you'd have your sketching tools or, or um, you know, pen and paper still even. And you just, it seems like you just start to be building momentum on, on a design and then you'd say, all right, now I have to stop, put the pen and paper away, put the 
sketch program away. Now I'm going to open SolidWorks and I'm going to switch over to a mouse. And it, it seemed like you would lose lose any momentum that you built up. And um, being able to transition into SolidWorks and still and still use the the pen, um, the new 3D Pro pen from Wacom is amazing. I don't know if you've tried that yet, but it's a three button pen that uh, that allows you to orbit and pan and and select and um, it just it's nice to be able to carry that design cadence through from the industrial design phase and ease into the engineering um, seamlessly. And um, yeah, definitely, definitely something that we leverage here. And I'd encourage you to try if you haven't. Yeah, I, I gotta try that yet. I um, being stuck as the cam guy, I haven't uh, played too much with that portion of it yet. Um, but uh, it, you're convincing me that I need to learn a new way. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's fast. Um, once you, it's like it's like the commands. Once you get used to, um, you know, moving your mouse around. But once you get used to some of the pull downs, and then they have, um, you can do flyouts with the buttons, so you can customize the the flyouts, and you get a couple of those going. It uh, it just it extremely it it speeds things up a ton. Cool. I'll I'll have to try that. Um, I'm gonna have to uh, learn a new trick. It sounds like because. Uh, I'm always interested in being faster and more efficient, plus uh, keeping up with the, the young kids that are using all the new tech. So, <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure uh, uh, we, uh, Wacom's going to be at uh, Three Experience World also, I'm sure level booth. So you can probably just try it right there if you want. Yeah. You feel for the, the pen. I'll have to sneak away from the shop floor to head over there. Um, so at Three Day Experience World, you guys are going to be with Mike, and then uh, you guys will also be hanging out with John and myself over at the at the shop floor, right? Yes, we will. Cool. Hopefully it's time to stand there. Hopefully, uh, you know, have talked to some people. We, uh, we we certainly love what we do, and we love talking shop with people. And we can do it literally all day, every day, if if that was our job. <laughs> but um, and so I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of like-minded people with a lot of you know skills that we don't have and. You know, obviously talk to them, and it's always great because you know talking to people and you, you kind of learn little tips, tips and tricks that they do. Uh, of course, we share our tips and tricks with everybody we meet as well. Everybody that wants to listen to us. So, yeah, please stop by and, meet and talk to us. Yeah, and I, I would encourage anyone that comes to 3D Experience World to stop by and talk to Jesse and Mark because you're not going to find two better guys that um, that just have a passion for design and manufacturing. So. Um, I know we're a little over our hour, but I can't thank you guys enough for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to chat chat with us today. And uh, I look forward to seeing you guys in a couple of weeks because I think this one's going to be uh, a fun year. Uh, we have some really cool things coming out, really cool things to talk about. And um, I, I just I, I hope everybody makes an effort to stop by and chat with you guys. Yeah, well, thanks for having us on today, Mike. This was, uh, this was fun. Like I said, Hockey Shop is what we like to do so thank you very yeah thank you i appreciate your time today yeah no problem i'll see you guys in a couple weeks sounds good see you then you've just listened to the 3d experience with john and mike subscribe to our podcast on soundcloud and itunes to catch up on upcoming episodes